Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Weigh basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Roland and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm a feminist, but I was extremely excited in reading the book of our guest today, Otega Wagba. Uh, we need to talk about money to find in the first third two references one to Mad Men, and the second, a meaningful reference to Burger from Sex and the City that I immediately understood. <laughs> I was so happy, I can't even tell you. I was meant to be learning important things about money, but really what I was doing was going, I get that joke, I get that joke. Cultural reference, yes. You've got to put stuff in there for the fans. You can't write a book, you know, about a millennial woman and not have a Sex and the City reference. Like I was just like, she knows I, had to, I had to trim it down. I was like, I'll just have one Sex and City reference and then we'll leave it. I loved it so much and I can't wait to talk about it, uh, about what the Sex and City reference was. Uh, But it was a significant (laughs) one. It was a significant one. And as soon as, on the page, it's a pun, but it's a pun that you don't necessarily see come. uh, If you weren't a really good Sex and City aficionado, you wouldn't see it coming, but I saw it coming straight away. I went, ah, I know where this is going. It was accurate. Uh, Yami, do you have an I'm a feminist but for us? Um, I'm a feminist, but my Instagram is a QVC of beauty freebies. <laughs> and I'm not upset about it at all. <laughs> you should be, because it is impressive to watch. Um, Thank you. I'm a feminist, but um, today's episode's about money. And I have no idea how much is currently in any of my bank accounts. Oh, that's fine. Wow. That's the same as me. That's that's no idea. Guys, we, fine. we've discussed this. You asked me how often. To be honest, actually, yeah. I did have to check my bank balance today because I got a text from my bank saying that I'd gone into my overdraft. And I got that too. I don't understand what happened. Like June was expensive. Like basically my credit card bill came out a few days ago. And then, like, it's just gone. Like, that's my money for the month gone. Like, like, I'm five days into, like, I pay myself on the 25th. So I'm like, oh my God. What am I supposed to do with the rest of the month? So, why are you not so surprised? I know exactly. I'm like, looking at you, like, honey, I know why you don't have any money in your damn account. And everyone just follows you on Instagram notes. I'm literally looking at all the dresses, the shoes, and I'm like, what's going on? These are my assets. Okay. Um, I'm a feminist, but I am so relieved that Otega just said that because I read her book and thought, oh my God, she's so much better with money than I am. I felt like intimidated. I was like, how are you so amazing with money when I'm so terrible? So you have made me so happy, Otega, by saying you've run out of money this month. There's so much months at the end of the money at, at, at sometimes. And you just right. go, there's all this month left. I've got 25 <laughs> days of month left. So I don't, I don't, I don't know how, well, I'm going to be getting Bill, some Bill for your appearance on The Guilty Feminist the second you've, you've come off. I, I will be, I'll be doing that. Um, I've got one. 
I'm a feminist, but I definitely want to marry someone who's richer than me. Oh, oh. she took it there. She took it there. I was wondering who was saying. Don't even try and give me anything. You're cracking up, Ortega. Sorry. Um, Anyway, Deb, I don't know what she's saying. I'm. (laughs) See, that's interesting because I'm a feminist and I've often thought if Tom and I split up, I would not want to marry a or get together with a very rich man because then it would be like everything we've built is for nothing. Like I've worked so hard to get this flat in London and we knocked through Mm. upstairs to this little attic. So now we've got like a loft with a little terrace and, you know, and I feel like I'm so proud of it. And it would just demolish it because it would be like, if I moved in with a man with a five-story house in Primrose Hill and with my little offering, I would then feel like, do you know what I mean? Like everything I'd achieved Mm. was drowned but it's sort of like, imagine working all your life for a swimming pool and then marrying the ocean. I'm a feminist and I want to marry the ocean. And I literally <laughs> want somebody, I want somebody that's going to be like, let me just, let me just <laughs> keep when it real now. Building that picture, Deborah, I was like, five story townhouse in Primrose. You know what? That's kind of nice, you it's know? It's little like, flat that I've been like, I've like, been painting up. I'm like, baby, let's sell that for change. Please, make that shoe exactly. money. I'll be, I'll, that'll be the Reno budget. I'll be like, right, okay, let's please. upgrade. I'm, I'm happy to. <laughs> To I mean, you're right. so much that's so smart and I don't know I don't know how smart it's more of a feeling I mean I, I'd probably get over it if I married a five-story <laughs> house in Primrose Hill right um, and I'm the private jet you'd be like right. it's all right. I think I'm a feminist, but I think I might have just said if I marry a five-story house in Primrose Hill, I realise the man has just diminished. All right. he is now is the five-story house in Primrose Hill. I guess he's no face in my mind. He has no face. He has no discernible oh, features. God. I mean, you know, basically, I am marrying the house, I've realised now. Oh. You've turned me. You've turned me. I'm very glad. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, any more I'm a feminist butts? I've got one more, which is I'm, a, it relates to the house, which is I'm a feminist, but I genuinely considered getting a boyfriend <laughs> because of my renovation and oh, not knowing where a fuse box is or what a fucking fuse box was. Babe, I started I, thinking if I had a partner. <laughs> I thought the exact same thing. Right? I had to get two male, I'm a feminist, but... I had to get two of my guy friends to come over and fix one of my blinds that had fallen down because I, mean, I just it's couldn't it on do hinge. it. They were literally on hinge. Being like, so, like, you know, and it's like, oh, turn-ons or, like, whatever, like, somebody <laughs> knows what a fuse box is. <laughs> I think if somebody says on hinge they know where your fuse box is, it's an innuendo. Yeah, it's a different I mean, meaning. <laughs> if you invite that man round, he's not really oh, going to know. He's not. <laughs> it's an innuendo. Oh, God. Uh, it's all I'm saying. Um, there is something called Task Rabbit, though. Uh, have you been oh, on Task Rabbit? You can get a chap or maybe a woman or non binary person will come. I looked that up, but I was like, why am I going to spend my own Just money about to say, this is why I take a second of money. Something <laughs> that if, if I had a man, they would do for me. Like I would resent. There we go. And then, you know, literally I would resent spending that money because I was like, if I was booed up, mm. this would be fixed. <laughs> this would just okay. be done. So I, I looked po- at the Task Rabbit quotes and I was like, no. And then I Sorry. called my guy friends and I was like, right. come over. But Honestly. can I just say the thing about Task Rabbit is when the task is over, the guy leaves. Mm. And Good the point. thing with having a boyfriend is they a, hang around, and B, might be very annoying in a multitude of ways. You will pay. Listen, a woman who marries for money earns it. 
That's a re- that's a, now that is certainly a point. That's all I'm saying. That little task rabbit comes in, fixes the fuck out of the thing, and fucks off. That's and true. that is its own value. I but learned I want- from your book, Ortega, that. The, the money isn't the only value. I learned. I learned all about social capital from your book. No, that is a very good point. I feel like I'm contradicting the message of my book. <laughs> I was about to say, you're like, which book now? Say, Who said I'm that? I'm like, Who? <laughs> any rich men out there listening? No, but one thing I will say is, I really love the setup that I think Tim Burton and Helena Bonham Carter oh my God. have, which they have. I think like separate adjoining houses. Mm. Yeah, had had. Mm. Mm. Okay, no longer. Yeah. But I've heard yeah, a couple, there's so a couple on my street that have that as mm. well. Um, the dream. I, I would love that just really close by, but right. I can just shut the door, have my own. I really like having my own space. Like, I like putting things down 100%. and they don't move. I don't like being nagged to do the washing up, like all of that. So mm. that's that's my ideal. But that's actually that. the dream for me, Otago, as well. Sorry, Tom, who's producing this podcast <laughs> and is sitting at the other end of the table listening to me say this. But... Uh, Listen, I, wa- I shouldn't say Helena Ron Carter and Tim Burton didn't work out. They were together for years and yeah, years and years. Are they no longer together? No. Yeah, they're not. Yeah. That's why I said had. Yeah, oh, yeah. had. Yeah. That, 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 listen, a long-term relationship now. We live so long now. I mm, think if mm, ten, mm. if you're with someone for 10 years, that's bad. basically a marriage. I, I yeah, think that's yeah. If you had three or four of those in a lifetime, you'd be very pleased, I think. And, you know, you'd get variety. You could upgrade along the way. Um, ultimately... <laughs> you could end up with a five-bedroom house in Primrose Hill that was the full relationship. There was no man in it. I agree with you, Otega, that that next door to each other situation, and maybe even an adjoining door like adjoining doors in a right. hotel room, so mm. you could, you'd have to go outside to get Yeah, in. yeah, I've, I've thought about that. And But they need mm. to request access. Yeah. You can't just come in. <laughs> right. So much more the romantic. Point? Yeah, then it's just a it's big house. Like, you have to ring the internal doorbell. Right. So I have yeah. some warning. Or... You just change the password code if you're in a mood with them. Yeah. Oh, oh that's so passive aggressive. That's the exact sort of thing that I would do. Like, even as you said, I was like, oh, that's so good. Oh, my God. I'm toxic. I'm toxic. Um, I think we could make the password toxic if you were feeling in a mood. Um, that would be great. I think that is so romantic because... You could sort of tidy up before they come. You can get your, you yeah. know, sexy clothes on or whatever. And then it's not seeing you in all of the, you're not seeing each other in all of those less romantic places and states. Yeah. I think oh, I mean, keep it alive. The mystique wouldn't, ne- I'll tell you, you know this. Like, I'm like, we could live what, what in mystique? separate countries <laughs> and I would still be rocking up in Crocs. Like, Listen, there were date night, I'm fully going to be. <laughs> such an issue with this. But I'm in my pajamas not- right now. So, like, uh, <laughs> why would I? <laughs> Oh, if those are your pajamas, you look very glamorous. Yeah, that's very it. glamorous, very chic. I mean, oh, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, you know, I was telling you, don't, you know, when it comes to my freebies, don't hate. I mean, look at them. What? No, it's a glamorous, <laughs> glamorous pajama. Uh, I, I, very, I speak very fashion and I know it's singular. It's a robe, to be fair. Like, I wish everyone could see it, could actually see what I'm showing. It's but. very stunning. It's this real, it's, it's my absolute lickable love is like a dark navy with a white, a very right, crisp white. white little detail. Oh, I love that kind of <laughs> preppy look. Oh, so lovely. From a variety of bedrooms and kitchens via Zoom, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Yomi Adegoke, and our very special guest, Atega Awagba, talking about money. Hello. <laughs> 
This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and our hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White. With me is Yomi Adegoke and we are talking about money. Money, 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 Yomi. I mean, <laughs> what's your attitude towards money? Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Big, Big bloody fan of it. Now, <laughs> Not gonna lie. I have to I have to come clean on two things here. One, I invited you to co-host this, uh, partly because I love your company and we've become quite good friends during lockdown. We have. Um, because we co-hosted a show for Tyler, like an agony aunt thing for Tyler. Um, sponsored by Hagen Dazs, paid for by Hagen Dazs. So money did come to mind when I thought of you. <laughs> And when I thought of money, I thought, I think money, I think yummy. The other oh, reason... Great. My brand is strong. Yes. The other reason is <laughs> I do tease you quite a bit about your bougie freebies. Oh, my God. I mean... Let's get into I it. I wondered if you're going to go there. <laughs> Let's go there. Oh, no. Um, your Instagram is a panoply. Is that the right word? Panel, <laughs> panel, panoply? Panoply. I think it's a panoply. Oh. I'll look that up later. I may be misusing that. A panoply of bougie freebies where you in a very glamorous way just show a series of designer (laughs) labels slash locations slash dare I say furniture (laughs) furnishings and not soft furnishings I am dying hard serious core furnishings I mean literally a sofa from made.com which I didn't even know was a thing you could get and um, be paid to post, I might add. <laughs> Were you paid to post it? I'm making this worse. I'm making this worse. Are it's you? a paid partnership. So so I am working with them. I'm collaborating with them. You know, there is value, it's a value exchange. I am being paid. <laughs> it's impressive. <laughs> Listen, oh. when I saw you at Wimbledon, was that a paid partnership? That that was a paid partnership with American Express, which is possibly the most on brand. <laughs> an entire credit card I'm gonna die look like I have joked that my Instagram is like slowly becoming like bougie QVC in terms of it's literally just me with items and being like bougie C that's what I'm gonna call you from now on bougie C why are you so good at this you're really great at like they just they just come out that is that is an incredible name but yeah like it's I'm gonna make things worse I literally just got sent this in about three minutes before the call. It is a cryo rubber soothing alatoin mask. I don't know what the hell this is, but you know you're about to see this on my Instagram. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Is this to make your face sort of more moist or supple or something? We'll find out. We'll find out when I, <laughs> once I've used it. So just for the listeners who can't see this contraption, oh, yeah, it looks like thing. something a Batman villain would wear to disguise his identity. <laughs> Quite but literally. But it is in fact a sort of pale green mask. a green mask. mask, and I think it's Korean, and it's called Dr. Jark Cryo Rubber Soothing Alan Toyne. And I saw it, and I had the audacity to roll my eyes, like, oh, God, not another mask, is it? <laughs> this is the problem. It but looks like a death mask. It does. Um, like that, you know, when they would, in Victorian times, they would oh sort of God. take a plaster of Paris of someone's face after they'd died. Oh, my God, it literally does. <laughs> Oh, you but it does also, look shiny. And- I feel like you should send that to me because you have very youthful skin. This is the thing I was going to say. Like, as much as I do, yes, I get lots of stuff. It's a running joke. I give so much of it away. Should I even say that? Don't, Actually, I no, don't think you should say go, that. Because then they're going to stop giving it to me. That goes, that goes. Okay, Tom so let me start that again. That out. I, I, I don't want... <laughs> All the command belt stops here. I want Yomi's hot and cold running, <laughs> bougie, 
Santa sack to keep going. Thank you. Because You're I might friend. sometimes get some of the crumbs off the table. Okay, so how how do I phrase this so I don't sound terrible? Okay, so obviously, yeah, I do get a lot of stuff, but but sometimes after you've advertised them, you might share them with grateful feminists. I share them with good friends, exactly. Grateful feminists. I make sure that they're used. They they certainly don't go to waste um, because I do use a lot of things so rest assured (laughs) they're in good hands they're definitely there's not a better person to send them to than me because i have lots of friends who benefit from them after they've been posted and used and enjoyed enjoyed. yes because you don't want them to end up as landfill and you can only have so many you know even you who has now bought your own incredibly glamorous flat which i read about in vogue (laughs) magazine um even you have only so much room for the bougie new stuff. Um, right. So sometimes <laughs> grateful adjacent feminists, i.e. I me, might, after you've posted it, end up with some kind of anti-aging glamorous mask, which frankly... Go. Sharing is caring. You don't need. You don't need. Look at your face. It's perfect. <laughs> Shh, don't say that. They'll hear and stop sending me shit. <laughs> Hello, Guilty Feminists. It's Jessica Regan here. I'm delighted to tell you that we still have a few places available on our Big Speeches workshops, which are happening on July 24th and July 25th, Saturday, 10.30am and Sunday, 3pm. If you would like to learn how to be more comfortable taking space, finding your voice, speaking in front of crowds, or sometimes just one-on-one in networking environments, please do join myself and Cyrus Lowe as we will guide you through the process, supporting you every step of the way. Go to www.guiltyfeminist.com forward slash big speeches to book your place. Our guest today is a writer, speaker and consultant. She's the author of the Sunday Times best-selling career guide, Little Black Book, a toolkit for working women. The short essay, Whites on Race and Other Falsehoods, and the upcoming, We Need to Talk About Money, which we're talking about today. I took that suggestion from the title and decided we do need to talk about money. Please welcome Atega Uwagba. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. I'm so excited you are here. Um, I read your book, uh, Atega, We Need to Talk About Money, and I was really impressed by it because money is something that I find, I find it so easy to look away from. I find it difficult to talk about. I think in Britain we have a sort of uh, a slight uptightness about ever discussing money or salaries, which is really just a suppressed fear and also slight passive aggression. And I also think books about money are going to be dull. And I wanted to read your book about money because you're a really interesting writer and I get your newsletter and you've always got a great angle on something. You're always a very animated writer. So I thought, finally, there might be a book about money that I don't hate reading. And I loved it because it was so personal. It was a memoir about your relationship with money. And through that, I learned a lot about money and had a better understanding of money. Uh, So I first of all just want to say I highly recommend this book to anybody who thinks they should know more about their own personal finances and how to negotiate a salary and all of those things that feminists should know while we're still in this capitalist society, until the glorious revolution. This is where we're at. And I just want to say, 
if you're somebody who would like to know more about money, but think, oh God, I can't read these boring websites, this is the book. Just get it and you will read it in one or two sittings. And it will all go in by osmosis, but in ways that are just very practical and very personal and very visual. Um, Money is often talked about in a very abstract way because it is an abstract concept. And this is a book that I think you could really relate to. Um, Yomi, have you read this book? I have read as much of this book at, oh God, I'll take his face. No, no, no. Pull that face. <laughs> no, I'll I'm kidding. It's like a long this. running joke between me and your book. It is a long she running joke. She doesn't read my books and it's fine. <laughs> She's like, it's fine. Oh, oh, so honestly, I'm it's twitching. fine. Yes, I'm twitching. Yes. I literally, no problem, no bigs. The WhatsApp <laughs> message I'm getting after this. But as Ortega knows, I have read a portion of her book, which I'm actually very proud of um, mm. because <laughs> I honestly was, you know, I, I personally didn't think I'd actually get around to reading any of it because I do a book podcast, which I have to read the entire shortlist of the women's. Mm. Look, at, look at me getting my oh, like yeah. terms and conditions, my asterisks, please don't beat me up, Ortega. But what I will say, Ortega is a phenomenal writer. She's a phenomenal thinker and I never have read anything like it. Not just in terms of it, really, I feel like, me centering myself in everything feeling like it was literally like she's literally like written this to me because the, the crossover and experience is insane but also just I've never read anything that as you said in terms of practicality things that like I'm somebody that probably has the opposite problem to you in terms of like I'm very more money orientated um I caveat that by saying it's less of a choice thing it's because I grew up with money issues so I'm super conscious around money um but I don't necessarily like um having to read all the literature that I need to in order to be like basically good with it whereas as you mentioned with Otega's book because it's a memoir and because she writes so personably and she's bloody hilarious <laughs> which she knows I was smoking at that she's really funny um so yeah I've never quite come across anything like it and I will finish it not because Otega's my friend but because it fucking slaps as a book and you know I'll finish it so don't even look no, at me like that what, I, <laughs> she actually, knows because she's a to- brilliant I'm writer happy, I'm happy with that and also I feel like I've kind of told you half of what's in it like I said Girl, so many I read it before it came out because we were like writing it I was like we were discussing something and I'd be like oh my god this is actually quite similar to something I actually wrote about in my book and then like I'd send you a screenshot so you've got the highlights I've read the I've listened to the audiobook because Otega will send me like four minute voice notes about basically the content of the book so I've listened to it honey but yeah no I highly recommend it it's excellent well I in my introduction to the book tried to say things that could be liftable quotes for your PR team but nothing I said was as good as Yomi's quote, it fucking slaps. Yeah. I mean, that's lifted. We're going to have that on the cover. Yeah. What slaps. I was trying to say is... Um, I was Yomi, Guardian Columnist. I was trying to say a dynamic, usable page turner every feminist must read. And uh, uh, really, Yomi boils that down to it fucking slaps. Okay. Fucking does. So, so can I read a little bit of this? Oh, yeah, of And course. then ask you to talk about it. Uh, You're talking here about class background. In it, you're referencing Pierre Bordeaux. And this was really, I was really captivated by this and the way you broke it down. Uh, He argues that class background is determined by how much capital one's parents possess. Capital in this sense, meaning resources. Breaking that down into three brackets, social capital, being well-connected and having friendships with people of influence, economic capital, cash, um, houses, and cultural capital, having the right cultural tastes, knowledge and educational credentials. Or as the writer Eula Bliss put it, what you own, what you know, and who you know. 
And I just went, oh, these are the things that are never really explicitly talked about. Can you unpack that a bit more or talk about how that has filtered into your life and yeah, sense of understanding? Definitely. I mean, the reason I referenced that is because I was doing that in the process of trying to explain my own class background, because I think even considering how class obsessed we are in Britain, we have you know, surprisingly rigid terms for how we, you know, discuss and categorise people according to class. It's like you're either middle class or you're working class or you're upper class and it's like rich, poor, average. And it it just doesn't make sense. And personally for me, like I am, you know, an immigrant. I was born in Nigeria, but moved here when I was five. And the thing that I always say, it's like when my family came here, we didn't have a lot of money at all. Like things were pretty tight and, and pretty tough. Um, we lived on like a really rough council estate in South London. And for most people, they would then categorise me as working class. But I've always said that that's not a narrative that I think I can fully claim because my parents are really well educated. They've both got degrees. My house was, you know, our flat was full of books. You know, we went to museums, culture gallery. Education was like the be all and end all. I didn't even realise that going to university wasn't compulsory till I was like a teenager. Like it was just like, I just assumed, oh, everyone has to go to university. I didn't realise that. And I just wanted to explain that and just kind of give a bit more nuance about my own class background, but also demonstrate how that can change over time. Like even between the ages of five and 15, I'd, you know, our financial situation changed. Where I am now, age 30, where I'm like a homeowner and working media, all of these things like people's class kind of transitions over the course of their life. And Sure, you're more likely to, you know, it's a bit of a grim statistic, but you're most likely to die a part of the class that you're born into. Like social mobility generally on the whole, especially in the UK, is not great. But I just wanted to talk about things, yeah, in a a slightly more nuanced way. And Mm. I think the topic can be so fraught and people are so judgy about it. And I'm like, it's just not that simple. Like, just accept it's not that simple. So that's why I brought in. And I also thought that was kind of the best definition of class that I've ever come across. Yes. All this is then filtered through your uh, mem- in your memoir about coming to London and first your family having to live in one room and then, you know, well, one, not one room, but one, like, you know, a one-bedroom one flat. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then you, because you were very bright at school, um, getting a scholarship to a private school mm. uh, for secondary school, Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, for secondary school. And how jarring that can be at the beginning, because now you are one of the brightest children at that school, but also you're there with lots of children who have a hell of a lot of financial resources around them. Mm. And it can be very difficult to not be able to compete in that way. Mm. I think I was quite lucky in that I didn't, for whatever reason, I didn't feel that insecure because my school was actually quite peculiar in that. I think a lot of like private London day schools are very like materialistic, especially girls' schools. And your kind of ranking the social hierarchy is based on like what bag you're wearing and like all that kind of stuff. Whereas at my school, we were just a bunch of nerds. And so the popular <sighs> kids were the smart kids. So if your grades were high, then you were one of the popular kids. And my grades were always high. So that was kind of what the social, I mean, I don't even know if that's fair or not, but that's kind of how the social pecking order was determined. So I was fine. So I didn't feel insecure like the fact that I was there on a scholarship everyone's just like oh yeah that's because Otega's really smart like it was like oh you're such a like boffin kind of thing like can't believe Mm. people you know the words we used to use but like it was never an issue but at times I did 
sense. And I couldn't help but realise that our financial backgrounds are very different. And I give the example in the book, you know, I was still very conscious of the fact that my family didn't have a lot of money. So I give the example in the book of a school trip when I was in sit form to Russia and I got the letter and it was just really expensive. Like now, now that I'm older, I kind of understand that my parents would have been able to find the money. But when you're 16, 600 pounds seems like an insane amount of money. And that's how much the trip cost. And then there were going to be all these extras. Like, and I knew it was just going to like come to like over a thousand pounds. And they were like, oh, it's going to be really cold. So we need, you need ski clothes. And I was like, I don't have ski clothes. And so I just didn't show my parents the letter. And I told my teacher that I didn't want to go. And then my parents found out like at my parents' evening a couple of weeks or a couple of months later, and it was too late for me to go. And so like there were incidents like that where I felt very aware of money and knew that I was in a different position. Like as far as I knew, and I imagine probably the reality is most of the girls in that class did not look at that letter and fret about the money. They just went home, tossed it to their parents and were fine about it. So I definitely was aware of differences, but it was never, and I'm so grateful for this actually in hindsight, it was never because of any like snobbery from my friends or the other girls. It was more just like the reality of our economic situations was different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is so interesting that you say that because I think that's quite unusual for a child to worry about money and not say, but is there any way we can afford this? Mm. And I was very similar to that. I was raised in Australia. And so there's a sort of, especially then, you know, there was a sort of, I mean, certainly I'm sure there was poverty in the inner city, but I lived in the suburbs where if your parents had an ordinary job or even, you you know, one of your parents had an ordinary job, everyone had a house, you know, it mm. was, it was not, and I, you know, I say everyone, probably they didn't, you know, like this is, you know, what was normal at your, but, you know, if I went over to a friend's house, everyone had a house, no one lived in a flat and everyone's house had a garden. And if you're wealthy, you had a swimming pool, which we didn't have, but our neighbours had a swimming pool because the beach was accessible. Everyone sort of had a similar experience. And I'm sure if I'd been in Melbourne where there were lots of private schools and stuff, I would have had a different insight into it. But I always knew money was a stress and a stretch. And so although we had nice toys at Christmas and things like that, it wasn't like we were not poor, but I knew it was a stretch. And I could just tune into things my parents were saying and anxiety about money. And so I used to not say if I needed new felt tip pens when I was like seven, because I just I would just sort of like try and figure out a way to make because I just was always and I look back on that now and think, oh, my God, my mother would have bought me them for me. But I just was Mm. worried. Oh, I just I totally relate to that as well. I remember this one time when I was um, a teenager. So remember when we used to have travel cards, I can't believe this system, but like remember in London, the travel cards used to be like a piece of paper. Mm. And like if you bought a monthly travel card and lost it, yeah. that was it. Like oh, there was yeah. no electronic oyster nonsense. And I remember yeah. one time I was actually with my dad when it happened. And so maybe I just bought my monthly travel card because I had to commute quite a long way to school and we just bought it. And it's like a hundred and something pounds for the month. And it slipped out of my hand in between the escalator cracks. So it was oh, gone. shit. And I was so upset. I was gutted. Like, I was just losing my mind. And my dad was like, it's fine. Like, it's okay. Like, we'll sort it. But I think they realised, and it's something we've discussed since, that I really absorbed and internalised those money issues that they did have. Like, children are like sponges. Like, they just yeah. absorb everything. Even when my parents were talking in Europe, I could understand 
when the conversation was about money and when it was stressed about money. When we went to the supermarket, if they're ringing up the till and the amount is high, I'd kind of be looking at them being like, how, how are they going to respond to this? Like, mm. you know, I thought like a 60, 70 pound supermarket shop. I was, oh my God, it's quite a lot. Even though we were family five, like we were going to Lidl, that would probably be the family shop for like the month or something. But it would just make me quite anxious. And that is something that I definitely carried with me into my teenage years, into my 20s. And I'm a lot better now, but it took a lot of work. To, and actually writing the book is, I think, a major part of what helped me to understand those patterns and to kind of start injecting a bit of rationality into it and not to have those instinctive emotional responses or to at least be able to override them with some common sense. Mm. Because before I would just catastrophize and just spiral out of control at like an unexpected expense. And now I'm like, it is what it is. Like mm. you just have to deal with this. So was writing the calm. book therapeutic? Yeah, that, it was, it was. And I wasn't expecting to say that, like, because I think that's something that any time like a woman writes something remotely personal, that is kind of a question that gets asked. And I can't remember which writer it was, but she had that question. She was like, no, therapy is therapeutic. But <laughs> for me, it really did turn out to be... I just really had to self-examine, like in order to tell my own money story to other people and to examine how money makes us feel, I first had to get clear on why I felt the way I did about money. So the progress I've made in like the three and a bit years since I started working on it and started writing the proposal, I feel like emotionally very different around money. And that for me is almost like the biggest benefit of having written the book, like on a personal level. That's really interesting. I think sometimes we just avoid things that are tough and all the emotions that go with them. And I think we think of money as maths, money as arithmetic, mm. and we don't realise how deeply personal and emotional it is. Mm. Yomi, do you relate to this feeling of worrying about your parents' finances in a random way? Like as a child, like why were we taking that responsibility? Mm. Yeah. You know what? It's interesting because me and Ortega's stories are so similar. But I'd say this is the one area potentially where, like, there's very slight deviations that are so interesting because we still would say, Ortega, tell me if you disagree, that we have quite similar attitudes towards money oh, in terms have, of, like, like, right? Like, we're, we're like, twins identical. When it comes we're like to twins, oh, financial twins, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I would say, and this is with all love and respect to my parents, um, I had an awareness and anxiety around money because my parents gave me an awareness and anxiety around money um it wasn't something that like I was made to not necessarily intentionally my sisters were made to feel bad about the financial situation so if we did small things that you know kids can do like you know kids just like roughhousing and then you like accidentally I don't know break something yeah we weren't like massively me and my sisters were like we were playing with our barbies like we weren't really out here like roughhousing like that um and we never like fought so it was like very rare but like if something like you know i don't know like i remember there was one time the like fridge door came off and that became our problem because we are these like you know like roughhousing girls are just like tearing the house to shreds and now it's, and now i'm older i'm like now hang on wasn't that I don't remember ever having a different fridge. That fridge is probably as old as me. That's <laughs> why the door came off the goddamn hinges. But like, there were so many things like that. So even when it comes to class identity, so interesting hearing Ortega speak about hers because like, I'm literally like one degree of separation essentially from identifying as middle class because like my parents are educated. I literally, in when we grew up on a rough estate in East London, as opposed to South, um, moved to Croydon, had a nice house, like, you know, had... Um, 
books galore like quite literally almost a library like my dad used to take us to um do karate like he wanted us to play the violin all these kind of things but because of the non-stop um bailiff situation it would feel dishonest of me in the same way i think for you a take it for dishonest of you to identify as working class for me i could never <laughs> identify as middle class because I guess the, the the funds just weren't there. Like money was such a boogeyman growing up that like the anxiety I still have around it. Like even now to this day, like all my direct debit, my, my approach to just having everything come out on the exact same day all at once, paying my taxes, like the minute that like, you know, everyone else is, like, I'll just put it off for a couple of days. I literally, like the day I get that email from my accountant, I'm already like going through my taxes because I'm so paranoid and afraid of like getting like um basically my house taken away from me i mean we've had situations we had rather it's like definitely very past tense but we had like real ongoing situations with bailiffs in my like formative years to the point where i would quite literally like come home and be like you know scoping the um the the patio for like um somebody stood there or like a van outside because i'm like oh god they're gonna take all our shit away and it's interesting because like yeah I, I wouldn't say i've ever felt comfortably working class because socially and like culturally there are definitely elements of like middle class identity there but the financial situation was so grave for so much of my childhood that like i felt bad asking for stuff i think the difference was i resented it so i didn't not ask if that makes sense like i felt like why is this like, because we were made to feel, as I said, inadvertently bad about it. Like, oh, everyone's got clock shoes or like everyone's got a kicker's backpack. I'd like that. And I, we were made to kind of feel like, well, you shouldn't want that because you should know that we can't afford it. But I think when I became a teenager, I just got frustrated and eventually was just like, I'm not going to not ask for things because like the financial situation's bad because I think they often made us feel, as I said, potentially unintentionally like, bad for uh, one example i give right one example i will give is that like one time my sister um opened doors to bailiffs and for like i think about a week my parents just had a go at her for like opening the door and we're like why did you open the door so we grew up thinking oh my god like our older sister's so naughty she just shouldn't have opened the door and then one day it just kind of occurred to me that like well actually the problem wasn't her opening the door it was like there were bailiffs there. Like they would have been there if she opened the door or not, but she completely internalized that and took that as like, that's her mistake. That's her wrongdoing. Do you see what I mean? And how that can yeah, like make you psychologically like, cause my sister blamed herself for that for ages. Cause they nearly yeah. took like all this stuff, but then it's like simultaneously, like it, yeah, it really messed us up financially. So now I think it's why even my approach to money and the way I talk about it, I'm very like nouveau riche with it. I love my nice things. I'm very unapologetic about the fact that like I'm getting money now because I went so many years of like an anxiety around not having it. And me and I take a joke that sometimes we'll sit there and we'll be like doing our finances and we'll be like fretting about our savings. And we knew that if anyone else overheard this conversation, we'd literally sound insane because it's like the savings are more than enough. But because we have such anxiety around money, like we could have a million pounds and we'd still feel like, oh God, but what if it costs two million to do this? Do you know what I mean? Like, I honestly don't know what amount I'd need to see in my bank account to feel safe. safe. And it's why I always say I have so many like random expensive bags because I'm addicted to saving. So I will save all year and then i'll go shit i'm not living it's like that parable you know that faith that thing in the bible where the guy saves all the stuff and then he dies like i think it's like hay in a barn and then he dies i'm always like thinking of that like you know that um psalm or whatever so i'll be like shit let me just buy like an expensive thing to kind of make myself feel like i'm enjoying my money and then i just go back to saving all year so yeah it's a complicated complicated thing well, that, it fascinated me in the book Otega, that you said 
that you write from your very first job, because you were still living at home with your parents, you sort of acknowledge that, you know, London thing of you can still live with your parents, but you saved an enormous amount of your very first salary when you were just in a temp job. And I was like, oh my God, I never did that. And I think my experience is slightly almost in some ways, uh, some ways, you know, similar, some ways reverse. My parents, neither of my parents had a degree and there was no expectation that we would go to uni, but I wanted to go to uni. I remember being five and thinking, I'm going to go. I don't know how I knew about university, but I was just like, I never imagined getting married and having children, which is weird because everyone in my world was married with children. Mm. Um, All the... I never ima- I imagine being a teacher. I never imagine being a mother. I never imagined being a wife, but I knew I was going to university and that was my big, big thing. And I would say I can be bro- how I was broke, 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 like electricity cut off when I moved out of home because I was a Jehovah's Witness and I had to knock on doors five days a week as a what we called a regular pioneer, which was you didn't get paid for that. Um and so then you worked two days a week in a shop to get by. My family had become Jehovah's Witnesses when I was 14. And so this was a real, it's a high control group. So, you know, you were selling the watchtower. Ultimately, I was a sort of unpaid traveling waterstones selling <laughs> selling these books. I look back now and I just go, oh my God, what was I doing? But I was very brainwashed at the time. So I didn't, I wasn't allowed to go to university because we became Jehovah's Witnesses and they wouldn't allow it. And so I've experienced being very, very, very poor. But I was saying I wasn't poor, I was broke. Because for mm. me, poor is no books, no, no, mm. my my imagination had been right. built. And when I was a little girl, my mother read to me every single day and there were so many books in our house. And my mother had been very clever at school and would have gone to university. She, every, I remember all these books that had um, first prize because, you know, on speech day or whatever, she would, uh, you when you win books for being first in English and first in maths and stuff. She had books for every year she was first in everything but at that in that period you know women were not encouraged to go to university so she read to us and I think had aspirations for us to go to university and I remember she would always we lived in a beach town but we had lived in a city in Brisbane so she would make sure a couple of times a year we went to the theatre or the ballet and we would drive there was a whole big thing because it took those days about a couple of hours to drive to Brisbane and we would dress up and it would be this whole big anticipated thing to go to the theatre, go to the ballet. And I remember once saying to her, I must have been about 10, saying, can we afford it? Which my sister or brother would not have said. I don't know if it's because I'm adopted and I was sort of more grateful or worried. I don't know. Mm. But I remember saying to her on the quiet, can we afford this? And she said to me, if of your worldly goods, two loaves alone are left, sell one and with the doll buy hyacinths to feed thy soul. And when I moved out, and she always, we always used to sort of, you know, that was a thing that she used to say to me. And when I moved out, she sent me some flowers. She sent me some hyacinths and said, don't forget the hyacinths. Aww. So years and years later, when she was having a really tough time, I sent her some hyacinths with the same message. And she phoned me and said, thank you for the stocks. And I went, I didn't say you stocks, I said you hyacinths. And she said, no, the florist clearly replaced them with stocks because they didn't have any hyacinths. And they had sent it with a message that said, if of your worldly goods, two loaves alone are left, sell one and with the doll buy stocks to feed <laughs> thyself. And I was like, I mean, all my substitute the flowers, but don't change oh them. Oh, my God. <laughs> God. Sorry, that is such the most outrageous. Word. Oh, my God. What about GDPRs? I Roses or something beautiful, either. It stops. <laughs> oh my god! It just doesn't flow in the same. Oh my god! You really got me there. Um, I, but that made me really emotional because I think for a long time, 
for a lot of my 20s. I mean, first of all, the can we afford this thing is definitely a question that I asked my parents or wondered often as kids and teenagers. Like, I remember one time we took like a holiday to to Canada and I don't even know how they made it happen. And it was like, and, and often, so as a teenager, we'd go on holidays as a family of four and my dad would stay behind. And like, in hindsight, I realised that was just to save money. Oh. And he like, you know, just to, just to like allow us to do it, the three of us girls and my mum, to allow it to be a bit nicer. But like, I don't know, it just makes me really sad thinking about that mm. now because it, that those were our family holidays. Our dad would just sacrifice himself and stay at home and like I don't know it just I I spent a lot of my 20s like sort of denying um myself nice things because I was so determined to save aggressively and it was so punitive Mm. and I think something I mean I've probably gone a little bit too far the other way um but a big part of my trying to improve my relationship with money in the past couple of years is giving myself license to splurge Right. And to spend sensible. I know kind of started off joking about how I'm in my overdraft and stuff like that. But like, and it is because I've actually just overspent the past month. But a lot of that is, and I'm lucky to be able to do that. But a lot of that is like, my God, the things that I said no to myself over mm. for no real reason. There is a bit right. of me that's like, okay, you can, do you know what? If you overspend this month and you buy that expensive dress you shouldn't have, you can figure it out. And it'll mm. work out. And it's just kind of trying to show myself that money isn't necessarily a catastrophe. Mm. So I just, yeah, I don't know, that hyacinth story is just like always, always kind of remembering to like treat yourself a bit and, and to mm. allow yourself to enjoy life, um, I think is really important. Mm. Like, no matter where I think on the economic scale you fall, obviously at some levels it's a lot easier than others. But I think it's why I object so much to that whole like very conservative politician narrative of like the feckless poor and mm. they just buy themselves widescreens exactly. and cigarettes and I'm like do you know what if you don't have a lot of money and buying a widescreen tv and cigarettes makes you happy which is not even what you know right they're spending their money on that's like a myth but like like poor people should be able to enjoy life as well have nice right. things at last you know during the pandemic when they had those school meals for kids and they were just the most barren horrible mm. chunks of carrot and i was like who says that poor people shouldn't also enjoy food right oh, but it's, it's just so and life delicious. and life yeah. why well, can't I, they have chocolate bars in there like i just thought yeah. it was so horrible so yeah a hundred percent get up to 30 percent off wedding jewelry at blue and remember the joy of your wedding day forever Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Weigh basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise 
people like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Rowland, and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday, and you can find the show on Earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Well, Atega, um, something I really related to, because when I did finally get to go to university, I went to Oxford. And mm. so I really related to some of the feelings that you had that you said, even though you'd been to private school at Oxford, there was a whole other level. And I remember walking down the street with some students once who were, you know, in that sort of, they, were, they had been privileged all of their lives. And there was a, a homeless chap in the street and who asked me for money and I gave him money and they said, don't give him money. He's only going to spend it on booze. And I went, and what are you going to spend it on? I was like, you exactly. were absolutely falling out of a nightclub on the Cowley Road right. last night, vomiting in the gutter. But this homeless man isn't allowed to buy some whiskey to keep himself warm. Um, excuse me, you've got a warm bed and you're getting a degree from Oxford. You have everything handed to you on a plate. Why is this guy? I said I would be drinking if I lived on the street. Mm, Keeps you warm. It just zones you out. At the very least. Jesus. Just softens, takes the edge off. You know, I absolutely, completely get it. And actually, I came out of, um, this is such a, oh God, I feel so awful, this story. uh, Because I came out of, I've been learning to dance in lockdown. And I came out of the dance studio where since lockdown's alleviated, I've been able to go. And there was a food bank there where there normally isn't. Well, I just don't normally go to that dance studio on that day. So I went across the road to get some things for the food bank. And I got loads of chocolate and Jaffa cakes and stuff like that. So I thought, what would I want? And what do people normally get? And I thought, I bet it's tins of tomatoes. And actually what you really mm. want is a, is a Twix. Mm. You know, like, do you know what I mean? It's true. And I, and I ended up getting involved with some lovely women who, you know, I ended up trading phone numbers with them. And I think I'm going to get them on the podcast. But they were like, oh, yeah, Jaffa Cakes. And one of them said, oh, fresh fruit. We haven't had fresh fruit in so long. And when I asked the guy, he went, we, we really need his tin tuna. And I was like, because it lasts and I get it and it's protein and I get it, I get mm. it, I get it, I get it. But I was also like, yeah, but also some tang fastic sweets as well, you know, surely. You don't know what I mean? Some joy. Like, Gosh. Some joy. And if there are kids yeah. in the family, they're just going to go wild for it. They're just going to go, you know, and it doesn't cost much to kind of make somebody's day in that way. Mm. Um. When you were writing the book and you were deconstructing all of this stuff, you now, as a, you know, both of you now, and you'd written about this as well, of being a homeowner and the gentrification of your neighborhood, Yomi. And I realize now, as I'm actually speaking, there'll be people listening on this podcast who'll go, oh my God, you all own a flat, like all three of us. Yeah. I mean, we don't own a flat. We've got a mortgage on a flat. The bank owns <laughs> the flat. The, the bank owns my flat. <laughs> yeah, the bank really owns, the bank Shout owns, I'm sure, half, good yeah. half my flat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of us have a flat that we live in that is owned by yeah. a bank, but yeah, we right. will own it at some point. Yeah, we will yeah. pay it off. And is there a sort of survivor's guilt for you in a way that's the wrong tone of phrase but you know what I mean is there a sort of push and pull around you know that like you were talking about uh, gentrification Yomi and I feel Mm. sometimes now with my family that I want to share so much and I've always Mm. been a present giver and I've always just had that in my nature that if I've got it let's share it let's share it around and that kind of thing I'm not a hoarder by any means if Mm. anything I spend money I don't have on things that will make other, you know, like a fun, nice chair. I can account for that. <laughs> I'm thinking about when you, when you took us to Soho House. So yeah, I can account for that. Um, <laughs> Drinks are on there. Yeah, go on. But then you took me to the Grouchy Club where you'd been given a lifetime oh, yeah. membership. <laughs> Another one of these 
Touche. Yeah, let me not speak. Touché. Let me not speak. It's outrageous. <laughs> uh, but is there is there a is there a push and pull about money inside of you internally and emotionally? If when you were a kid it was a problem, but you're both so young because I didn't get my flat before I was thirty. Like the fact that you are both now homeowners, is there a, an absolute joy and a pride, and also a like, a, how has this happened? Uh, like, what's internal for you around that? I think personally, it took me a while for the joy and pride to kick in just because the process of actually buying my flat was just an absolute shit show. Like I'm self-employed. I was doing it by myself last year, like in the height of the pandemic lockdown. So it was very, very stressful and complicated. And so like even once it had gone through and I'd completed, there was it was like a delayed reaction. But when it finally kicked in, I always say this when people ask me about it. I'm like, it's the happiest I've ever been. It's the best thing. That's ever happened to me in my life and I'm so and like the, the flat I bought is literally around the corner from like that one bedroom flat that my family lived in when we first came to this country so it's like an amazing full circle moment I think the sort of flip side of what I feel isn't necessarily survivor's guilt but I feel a lot of anger at recognizing how happy this has made me and the weight that has been lifted off me Remembering how I felt when I was renting in some really shitty flats and terrible landlords and terrible housemates. And I just feel anger that the system is set up like this because I really do feel like what I have managed to like luck my way into or whatever. I feel like I managed to beat the game, basically. Everyone should be able to have this. And I'm not just saying that to be holier than thou, but I'm like the satisfaction that I get from this thing and how when I wake up in the mornings, how I feel about it and how certain things that would have bothered me before just kind of go over my head because I'm like, do you know what? I've got my flat. Everyone should have that. And it makes me really, really angry at the state of the housing market in this country and the politicians who have never, you know, the vast majority of politicians come from middle class and upper middle class backgrounds and they have no idea what it feels like to have housing insecurity. and. I'm like, if they did, I can't fathom that the situation would be the way it is and them, you know, propping up the housing market, house prices. Like, they have had the greatest rise this year, in the past year, since 2004. It's just spiralling out of control. And I just think that it just feels really inhumane. And so I think about that often. And it's not even like, I, I don't know what I personally can do. Um, I like stay informed and so there is like a feeling of like helplessness around that even though it doesn't affect me directly it's still such a close memory that I I can relate to it essentially yeah like in terms I feel like I know you said that survivor's guilt isn't like the right terminology but sometimes like personally it does feel like that just because of the proximity of I mean it doesn't feel like that but you know what I mean the, the phrase feels apt because like I bought like three minutes from my sister, but then 15 minutes away from my family house. So it's really, really close. And it's like, I look at, obviously Thornton Heath is still like, I'd say pre-gentrification. And like, I feel like, I mean, I wrote about it in my piece for Vogue where, you know, I think because of how limited and limiting the conversations around class are surrounding the black community, it's very easy for people to almost, um, I, I feel like one of the reasons Ortega's book is so important is because it's like viscerally honest. And she is one of the few people I know that engages with her class identity openly and 
and in a genuine way. But we've had various conversations about this where I said that I feel like, especially on platforms like Twitter, it's very easy to kind of have grown up in a particular area, have a completely different experience now as I do, um, and still speak on behalf of the black British working class because you're black, because you grew up in ends, so to speak. And, you know, I literally still live in, I live in Croydon. I live in Thornton Heath. That's where I grew up. I still have so much culturally in common with the people of Thornton Heath. That being said, I own my house. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I own that mm. flat. So so I'm a, I'm a Guardian columnist. It does not mm. get more like, do you know what I mean? Bleeding heart, liberal, elite, like champagne socialist than that. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, I feel like it's very easy to gloss over that and kind of cosplay almost as yeah. um, a member of the black British working class. And I think, again, why I said Ortega's book is so important is because she's never done that. And I feel, to be perfectly honest, given the fact that she got into her secondary school on a scholarship, given the fact that she grew up on an estate, these are all things that she could cling to and kind of be like, yes, see, I am one of you. But like, I think one of the things that we connected on with this conversation was the fact that we both felt like, well, that doesn't feel in the same way for a long time. I didn't feel I could identify as middle-class. Now I know I can't identify as working class and I have no want to, because it doesn't feel authentic to me. And even then it's like, I, I, I alongside that guilt and alongside that kind of like strangeness of uh, trying to like find a cohesion between these like new, this new identity and an old one. I feel so much gratefulness to my parents, the same parents that made me feel like bad about their money problems, because I know that like, I mean, that, you know, there are lots of um, things in terms of second generation, like um, African upbringing as a like you know child of Nigerian immigrants like when it comes to money conversations I wouldn't say that we as a community are necessarily the most frank I think that you know there is a definite kind of like my parents would never tell me how much they earned I used to inquire oh, though no, because right God. I only inquired because they Listen. were so cagey about money so I was just trying to get an understanding of what was in our remit to ask for so I know that they're kind of you know, funniness around money and making us feel away about money wasn't out of malice. And what was such a representation of their love is how much they sacrificed. Like Ortega saying that, like, you know, when you remember your holidays and your dad not coming, I'm like, I used to go on holiday more than the people with money at my school. This is what's so bizarre. I think, I mean, I don't know, Ortega, correct me. I'd be interested in what you think, but I feel like when it comes to the, um, like, diasporic experience, they spoil you. They spoil you. Sometimes when I went on holiday with like my private school friends, I remember this very clearly. Like we did this one holiday after we'd finished sixth form. We went to a music festival. The amount of spending money my parents gave me, it's like my friends were all like, okay, I've run out of cash. And I was like, I don't know about y'all. I'm going shopping. Like literally <laughs> like started off I to cannot. Mango in Barcelona to like buy myself clothes with all this left. Because my parents were so, they really wanted me to be able to keep up and to have fun and to enjoy. And now bearing in mind that the girls I was on holiday with, their parents had way, 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 way more money than I did. And I think the amounts that we were given would have meant more materially, you know, my parents dashing me a few hundred pounds versus mm. their, you know, banker parents. But yeah, it's like those sacrifices, like they, mm. they never wanted me to go without. Mm. And so there right. were so many ways that I say that like in many ways my childhood felt very plentiful very well this is, this is what I was gonna say because I feel like so my parents were actually very very stingy with spending money I won't lie <laughs> they were very stingy they'd be like come on congratulations guys here's this five and I'm like how do you split five between three I'm not sure <laughs> me and my siblings but experiences they were like you're gonna do karate we want you to try and do violin 
I'll never forget one time, like our house, so our house used to get burgled all the time, which didn't help things. And our violins got stolen. Oh, and I was no. like, God, can you imagine in West Croydon, who the hell is stealing the violin? I was like, what <laughs> on earth? Um, but like, they were like so keen on like getting us to go to theatre. And we used to go on holiday all the time because they was, and we'd come, we'd go on holiday and I'd come back and I'd be like, okay, but now the light's off. So why did we go on holiday? But honestly, I don't. <laughs> I understand the logic because they wanted us to experience life. And as you said with yours, I went skiing in Utah. <laughs> like I went skiing. That, to be honest, they that found the money. <laughs> is actually like, you've told me that before and yeah. I'm just like, pardon? They really, re- we had a piano. Like this is the thing. Like, you know, we had, it was such a bizarre experience because we were fretting about money all the time. But seriously, I can say my parents sacrificed everything to make sure that we were like cultured so to speak that mm-hmm, so that we engaged mm-hmm. in life like mm-hmm. even the fact I did art and I like, used to paint my parents weren't like oh you know you've got to be a lawyer a doctor an engineer they were like no go and paint we want to encourage this we, we want to nurture this part of you they were really big on the arts and creativity and really pushed me and my sisters to like be ourselves. They have two daughters that are journalists there is no damn money in that profession they still were like go and be journalists but you need to like learn how to be journalists that make money and it's what we've been able to do so like I feel so I could actually cry I feel so grateful when I think about them and when they came to like see my house Ortega knows the story they're still my parents they were horrifically annoying like just micromanaging everything but they were so proud and you could just see it was like actually the manifestation of their dreams and I know that sounds a lot but that is the like second when I say Ortega you know man that experience where your parents come from somewhere else and then they try to make roots somewhere and they're not sure if it's going to work out and then they see you set up your own roots here it's so beautiful loves my flat more than I do I swear <laughs> to God the reason I even put in an offer on this specific flat because you know she we did all the viewings together saw different places she loved this one and she was also openly like eyeing up in front of the stage and I was like okay play it cool like you know like, don't, I was like sh- you know yeah. I was like complain please Aww. like and like and then you know the, the negotiating back and forth and you know I was like mm, no, I'm not going to go up to that and I just again remembered the way my mum had reacted to this flat right. versus the other places I was seeing right. I was like let me just come and dig behind the sofa for extra cash and I was like I, I was I need to buy this flat because my right. mum loves it and now she's still almost a year later she still brings it up she's like I just am so happy Aww. you've got that flat like she still brings it up Man. and it's because my mum came with me to every show in <laughs> she came Listen. every single show in <laughs> I, so, I, I have a very similar relationship with my mum that she's so proud. I don't know, I don't have any mm. children, but I can kind of imagine that. And as, as you say, especially that experience of pitching up somewhere thinking, are we ever going to mm-hmm. get roots here? Mm. And then seeing your children get book deals and being central to events, Guardian columnist, mm. own a flat. Like it must just mm. be so emotional for them. Yeah, and I right. think my mum similarly, she doesn't really understand what I do, honestly, but uh, there's a, there is a pride in, you know, seeing whatever you, whatever it is that you do seems to be going well. Um, there's a couple of things, because I know Yomi's short on time. So there's a couple of things I wanted to mention from the book. One is that, uh, firstly, the Mad Men reference, uh, that you watched Mad Men and decided to go into advertising, Otega, which I absolutely love. Idiotic. Um, Fool. The, uh, but did were you, you see yourself as Don or? Draper or did you see yourself as Peggy? Like, uh, where you know, were you Joan. sitting in there? Joan was the one who seduced me and got me into that oh, rotten I... ass industry. I just thought it was going to be, because it's so glamorous and so like, like it's really, I was like 21. Like, I'm not the only person who got into advertising because of Mad Men. Literally my best friend, Nick, like we both were like 21 to that university 
both watched Mad Men, both loved it, and we were like, we're going to go into advertising. You thought it was all going to be day drinking and, uh, and thought, afternoon delight. And- yeah, I was just going to be lunches. I thought they'd, oh, do you know what? I thought there'd be handsome men just like, you know, everywhere. I just, I don't know. It's just very, very naive. And do you know what? Some aspects of that show were spot on because the sexism and misogyny, boy, <laughs> that, <laughs> that was out. all realistic. And also out. the drinking, out. like a lot of, and the affairs, all ah. of that was very accurate. But I forgot that as like a black woman, I was going to be on the negative <laughs> side of that. So I thought, I thought I'm going to be some like Roger Sterling kind of cat, like, you know, coming in charming <laughs> clients. And they were like, bitch, Girl. you're a woman, you're 22 and you're black. And you're even black. black. I'm like, respecting the delusion. I love it. delusion. So that was eye-opening. Um, but you, what, what really impressed me was that you negotiated a salary. There were two companies that wanted you and you were saying to the recruitment person, well, hey, can we play this one off this one? Because if this one's, I want to go for this one, but this one's offering more money. Can we tell this one what the other one's offering? And I was like, I never would have had, I would have just been so like grateful at that age to be offered any money at all by anybody. I mean, I was a Jehovah's Witness then, so it doesn't really compare, but it was so impressed me that you understood that, but you also ended up having to back down and you said you wouldn't have done that if you'd understood how much that sort of, well, it's only two grand once you've paid tax anyway, blah, blah, blah. Mm, But actually what you start at affects the rest of your life because it's what you can ask for next and next. And this is why men typically are always ahead of women because they get offered a better starting salary or they're somehow coded by society that they are entitled to negotiate at the beginning of their career. Um, Could you just talk about what gave you the idea to negotiate the salary? Was it, in fact, that you'd watched a lot of Mad Men? (laughs) I think, I mean, first of all, I've always been quite a wily person. Like, I'm just going to be very honest. Like, A wily coyote. Yeah, I've always (laughs) been quite wily. But also the thing that I would say actually was very, like, educational and formative in how I went to the workplace was reading a lot of women's magazines as I grew up. Like, Glamour, I guess Cosmopolitan, like, all of that, like, InStyle. And, like, they would have careers advice for women it obviously didn't apply to me because I was literally like 16 years old being like, hmm, here's how to tell your boss something. But like, I definitely absorbed that. And like, I am also a very naturally confident person. Like, okay, so that negotiation you talk about, that was, but I always negotiated because also I was very career focused. So like at my first job temping as a receptionist, I used to just sit at my desk because the computer screen, nobody could see it, which was like a dream. And I'd just be on Forbes.com, just reading about people's careers and reading like business and management articles. So like I just absorbed these articles and these media outlets tell you that's what you're supposed to be doing. And so that's the attitude I went into the workplace with. And then obviously after a couple of years, you kind of get that knocked out of you because people treat you in a certain way. But definitely, I don't think it was unusual to be doing what I was doing. I just thought that's what people, that's what, you're, that's what that's they tell you, what you to, had do, to so do, that's what you do. Yeah. A bit like you thought it was illegal not to go to university. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if you tell a kid the right thing, like, yeah. they'll just absorb Absolutely. it. So I just, I just assumed. And the other thing was the burger reference, mm. uh, that you went away on a trip when you were promoting a book with a man who behaved very badly. And when you came back, your friend said, he's a burger and you immediately thought like a hamburger but in fact sex the city fans will know exactly what that means it was so perfect because the thing about it as well so like very long story short i just had some dalliance <laughs> with this guy i've told yomi about it and she still thinks it's absolutely mad and 
because it is. He, he, <laughs> he lived in Australia. I obviously lived in London. We decided to go to Rome together to yep. see what we could see. Makes the sense. trip was a disaster. And he was very, very funny about money whilst we were there. And I think a bit threatened by my success. And, you know, it was like this big swanky press tour in Italy. Like it was very cool, actually, as a first time author. And yeah, when I came back, my friend pointed out, she was like, he's like Jack Berger. He's like threatened by your success. Obviously, any Sex and City fan will know how it all works out with Carrie and Jack. And like, you know, he goes mad at her when she buys him that expensive Prada shirt and just like negs her constantly. And then obviously eventually dumps her. But the mad thing about it was it really took my friend pointing that out to me and like piecing it together. And it was like that kind of like, you know, there's that meme where the eyes guys, the guy's eyes go wide and he's like, oh my God, I've just realised like, that was honestly what happened to me because our, I don't know, entanglement, let's call it that, had previously been so positive and supportive. But I think that press trip, which in some ways I'm sympathetic to, but I think it was just the straw that broke the camel's back because he was also having career issues and money issues at the time. And it just was a shit show. But you know what? I loved that I was able to sneak that Sex and the City reference in. And it was, and it, you know, it also it's like it really happened in real life. It wasn't me like analysing that afterwards that was generally what my friend said to me it was a beautiful moment I'm sorry I can't don't hate me paper covers rock the one where Carrie is broken up with on a post-it honestly to be honest that's basically what this guy said to me by whatsapp so like (laughs) it's it's really just I had my my Carrie Bradshaw moment I mean, in those days, there wasn't WhatsApp, so she couldn't have got broken up with by exactly. WhatsApp. He would have WhatsApp. He would have WhatsApped her if he, he could would have. have. He would have absolutely WhatsApped her if he could have. But that idea of men being threatened by success—I write about this in the Guilty Feminist book—that you see these articles coming up all the time. All the time on my feet, I see these articles that oh, if a woman is funnier than a man, it can emasculate him. Oh, men are not attracted to uh, women who earn more than them or you can emasculate your husband. I see these, they, they're they all over the internet. And I just go, you know, I've never once read an article that said a handsome, clever, funny, wealthy man, oh, he's going to intimidate a woman. <laughs> but we're told that anything beyond beauty is actually not brownie points. It's They take off points. Oh, but you're successful. That might make you unattractive. I'm like, fuck off with that but it is it's I don't think it's men waking up in the morning and going I don't want you to be successful I think it's just coded that if they're not slightly more successful than you they're Mm -hmm. somehow a failure which Mm -hmm. is a burden for them to bear Uh, Tom Solitsky our producer is coming in here to say that Yomi's got to go I've got to go yeah I'm sorry guys this is such a because I've got a panel and I've got to go and get ready I'm sorry guys what kind of panel getting that shamani Jackie Collins actually which is yeah my entire mate love a Jackie Collins reading it secretly age 11 girl listen listen where did he put her nipple that's what I wanted to talk about I'm so sorry that was so sick but I gotta run Yomi do you have anything to plug anything you'd like our uh, listeners to follow read look at send you for free let them follow me on Instagram so I can get my followers up so I can can be continue the pipeline can continue right let's get that following up honey so how (laughs) where can they follow you on Instagram yomi.adega k and then at yomi.adega k on Twitter I think I was losing it yeah that's me guys 
Great. Okay. Keep so the please belt going. follow Yomi. Also, she does lots of wonderful writing. Uh, oh, you yeah, can that find too. all of that. Online. I've got a full influencer. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> uh, you have been absolutely wonderful, Yami. Thank you very much. Big round of applause for the wonderful Yami Edekage. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Hello, this is Deborah interrupting your podcast just to let you know that tonight, July 12th, if you're listening to this episode right away, we are recording our free Britney episode with a live audience. That's right. Live audiences are back um, at King's Place near King's Cross in London. There are a few tickets left, so come along and join this very interesting panel discussion Kima Bob is co-hosting. It's going to be a great one on feminism and conservatorships, women, Britney Spears in particular. We are at the Southbank Centre at the Queen Elizabeth Hall on the 10th of September and the 11th of September. And we have some really exciting, proper, big lineups for you with lots of stand-up comics, musicians, uh, discussions. They're going to be really spectacular shows. So the tickets are £27, but £20 concession and anybody can have a concession who needs one. You won't be challenged at the box office as to why you've booked it. We understand you might have just had a difficult year with COVID and that's absolutely fine. Just buy a 20 quid ticket if you can't afford a £27 one. But we hope to see you there because they're going to be really wonderful. And we're touring Australia and New Zealand. I cannot wait to come back. I'm super excited. October and November this year, get tickets now. We're doing one show only in Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, Brisbane, and Canberra. We're also doing one show in each of these cities, Auckland, Wellington, and Christchurch. Book your tickets now because the tickets always go early. Get them ASAP. We cannot wait to be with you. You can find out all of the dates for our upcoming shows on guiltyfeminist.com. And now, back to the podcast. Uh, can I just ask you, is there anything uh, in the book, is there anything you came to say that you didn't get to say? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think the only thing that I didn't get to say because I didn't feel like I didn't have like enough space to explore it. So there's a chapter about beauty and the beauty tax. And, you know, I talk about how standards of female beauty and representation in the media have been widening. But something that I actually think is more important than like diversifying conceptions of beauty is just downplaying its importance altogether. Like, I think the kind of narrative at the moment is like, every woman is beautiful, you're beautiful and you're beautiful and it doesn't matter what size and shape and colour you are. I'm like, we're still placing the paramount on women's appearances. Now we're just trying to kind of expand the, you know, the boundaries of beauty. But what I want is a world in which women can look however, which I think is something that men get. You know, you've got very, very successful men who are just very ordinary looking. But for women, you have to look a certain way. And I just, yeah, it's something that I would have liked to get into more, but there's only so many, so many words I can write. Well, can I just say, uh, I am sure that your publishers are listening to this and will be commissioning another book uh, (laughs) called The Beauty Tax very soon. Uh, I think you're absolutely right about that. I feel like women are held to a very, very different standard there. It's not that men don't worry about their appearance. You know, a man will go on a date and be going, oh, am I balding? Mm. Oh, what's she going to think of me? Oh, you know, am I in shape? Whatever. But they don't think that going into a work presentation. Yes. As long as they've combed their hair, they just think either it's irrelevant 
Or this is a perfectly good example of the genre of male body, face. They just don't think about it. Like the fact that they don't look like a aftershave billboard with Brad Pitt on it. They're just not trained to think that that's something they should aspire to. And I'm not saying they don't have any insecurities. Increasingly, men do have insecurities mm. as Instagram and culture escalates and, you know, more and more beauty products are sold to men. Of course they do. But only, I think, in the context of dating. They're, right. It, not about their financial worth at all. No. And like some of the research I uncovered when I was looking at the book is that, you know, women who are perceived as well-groomed earn more money, up to 40% more, actually, more money than women who are perceived as poorly groomed. And it's not even necessarily about so-called physical attractiveness. It's like so many studies, but it's actually about, do you get your nails done? Do you get your eyebrows done? Do you get the hair done? And it's basically about showing that you're conforming to, you know, the standards that society has set for us, showing that you're kind of bowing to those norms of having to do certain things to your body. It's about kind of conformity. Um, And I'm not above that. You know, like I spend, I think I'm mid maintenance. I'm not high maintenance. I'm not low maintenance, but there are situate professional situations in which I take a lot of care with my appearance because I know it's probably going to get me further. Isn't that, you know, a terrible thing? I mean, that's another sort of I'm a feminist, but kind of thing. You know, I'm a feminist, but I get manicures ahead of important meetings because I think that will probably help me get things over the line. I am also smooth and polished. Um, I think it's about, as a woman, are you put together? Because that shows that you will be put together in this uh, formal professional situation. Because the assumption is that a white man in a grey suit Mm. is good at this kind of thing. But because we both watch Mad Men, that's only a few decades ago. That's five, five decades ago. So... The fact that women were only allowed in support roles, and that was quite new. That was only because of the war. Before then, if you watch Edwardian, you know, Ian Forster type films, the secretaries are men. Everybody's a man. So allowing ourselves into position of influence, like, would you have the kind of mind? Uh, that's still in the ether. It's still, we're tr- mm. still trying to prove we're organised, we're somebody who can present good ideas well. So if you can't even present your fingernails, we doubt you're going to be able to present, you know, the yearly reports or this you know, great big advertising campaign. It's still driven from women having to prove they even should be in the workplace with our totally. kind of with our flaky brains and our just desire to cuddle babies all day. And mm. it's it's not in anyone's conscious, I don't think, or certainly not many people's conscious. It's all still filtering into the unconscious because it's so recent we've been allowed into the workplace in a significant way. And any position of influence or creativity, it's so recent. We're talking tens of years we're not talking hundreds of years so I think that there is that and then of course with an intersection of race and all the dialogue around hair and I saw something awful today about the Olympic Committee not allowing women with African hair to uh to wear these special swimming caps that actually because you know that is a thing that stops a lot of black people from swimming or learning to swim I know worrying about my hair has stopped me from swimming as much as I otherwise would because you know you kind of have to maintain it and so they're telling black athletes that they can't wear essentially larger swimming caps that cover all of their hair and you just think what message does that send out how many people are you excluding what is you know I even thought what it like 
if they want to do that, let them do that. Because also I just thought, well, this is just going to add to like the drag. Like it's not really necessarily helping them as athletes. So it's not giving them an unfair advantage. No. So like what possible reason? It just feels like sheer elitism. And it's very like, that's not the way things are done here. And I just mm-hmm. think it's, yeah, I saw that. I thought that was appalling. But black people very often have their hair policed in professional spaces. You know, there have been people, again, I talk about this in the book, but women who have been turned down from jobs because you know they don't wear their hair relaxed or they're wearing braids or they're wearing dreadlocks or you know they have their hair out natural like it happens you know every couple of months or every year there'll be something in the press you know with these kind of scandalous issues and some company will issue an apology so it's that's also something that I have been aware of like I'm much more confident and feel able to wear my hair however I want these days but definitely when I was working in advertising and in nine to fives, I definitely wore my hair the way that I thought I needed to look in order to be presentable, which was relaxed. Which again, if we're looking purely at this as a money conversation, means that black women are immediately disadvantaged on any number of levels because it costs a lot Mm -hmm. to force your hair to look more like hair of European heritage. Yeah, totally. And time, the time that all of that takes and the assumptions that are made in terms of what you will accept as a salary and the the projections onto a black woman constantly. And more and more I am realising that the levels of privilege and marginalisation and oppression and up the ladder jack jobs for the boys, so much of it is what is projected upon us for what we should expect or how good we will be at this kind of thing how good people like us have traditionally been at this kind of thing or uh, you know the expectations that have been set just simply by the movies by what kind of person looks like a ceo what kind of person looks like a secretary what kind of person looks like a cleaner what kind of person so much is projected 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 but also positively what kind of person is going to be good at this kind of thing what does a young film director look like if you look like a young steven spielberg you will get a lot more respect on the set than if you look like somebody who doesn't make movies in our collective imaginations, in society's collective imagination. Definitely. I was very aware of that in advertising, that the sort of creatives were always white and male. And for anyone who was outside of that, kind of trying to break into that role, it was just always very hard. Very hard for women. I didn't know a single... I don't think I met a single black creative when I was working in advertising. And I worked at several agencies which is mad now that I think about it, but I definitely didn't need a single black creative. It's wild. They're advertising products to everybody, Mm. but they don't get that insight. It's obviously costing them money. Mm. It's such bad business. And there's that awful storyline in um, Mad Men where Burt Cooper comes in and sees Dawn on the front desk and goes back to Joan and goes, we can't have an African-American woman on the front desk. And she's like, are you saying that you don't want, because of course this is in the middle of the civil rights movement, are you honestly saying you don't want... And I, it's one of the only times that I think they honestly went there with race mm. because they allowed them all to be misogynistic and homophobic, but they just thought if Don's as racist as he would have been, we yes. would immediately just go, we can't deal with this now, he's a monster. But that was one of the moments where I went, you need to show that is what's I, happening. I totally agree with you. Like when people kind of criticise the show for like having been sexist or whatever, I'm like, you do realise... That is how it was. This is probably a dialed down version of what people had to deal with. And especially 
in the 60s, which, you know, so much of the show is set in that decade, but 50s, 60s, 70s, those, you know, affluent, upwardly mobile white Americans would have been, if not wildly racist, but even if they were socially progressive and liberal, they would just have had views that we no longer think are acceptable. So I just think, for me, I never objected to... In fact, I sort of welcomed the portrayals of especially racism and sexism because I was like, let's not pretend... I think there's this... There's the kind of flip side where you get those kind of white saviour movies. like um, It's like, I think, The, the Help. Mm. Or the one where they've got all the rocket scientists, the women of the oh, rocket hidden scientists. hidden figures, yeah. Hidden figures. And they've got this, you know, lovely sort of white man who's like kind of comes in as a saviour. And I was like... Kevin really? Costner comes and rips the sign off right. the loo to say that the black women can use the loo. And I'm like, luckily there was a white man there to save the day like they yeah. always do and always did. And you're but, like, and I'm like, there, there may well have been, you know, individuals like that, but it's not really a realistic portrayal of that period of time. And yet that movie implies it is and that there was always sort of this one good gun. I'm like, no, they might have just had like a really shitty time and that was it (laughs) the toilet stayed segregated so yeah honestly i think it's the only way white people can watch it i say that like i'm not a white person i say it with the full knowledge of you know i've learned a lot in the last five years and i've been very lucky to be educated by a lot of incredible black women who've come on this show or i've talked to or you know i'm close friends with now and white people's comfort is responsible for so much and i'm so aware of it now and i've done what i can to rid myself of it as much as I can but we live in a world where white people's comfort is constantly weighted over black people's liberation and it's just when I saw Slave Play have you seen Slave Play? I haven't seen it no it's it's not been in the UK yet has it? No No. but I just I saw it in New York and I was was over there doing a job or something and I came out and I wrote down what I learned I had these feelings that I could immediately process into something that I could intellectualise and I quickly wrote it down What I learned was in a way that I'd never understood before, in a way that art can change you, in a way that almost like an academic approach can't. I just went, is that, and this is specifically about the African-American experience, but one can obviously extend it to Britain through colonisation and that black people in America, the real trauma comes from the fact that if they wish to partake of the social capital they must participate in the gaslighting every single day they must pretend that this is all fine because white people are too uncomfortable to discuss it if white people would come to the table and just go okay let's talk about this this is not that long ago a bit like me saying women weren't even expecting you know the brilliant thing about day one of mad men is that the women are participating in it. You know, Joan says to Peggy, sorry about all this technology, but they've made it so easy even a woman can use it. And Peggy goes, I hope so. Because they're, Mm. of course, participating. What I love about that show is it's a slow awakening that Peggy has of like, hold on, I could be good at this. What is barring me from it? And she has a revelation that's about her gender. But then there's a participation that she has to... You have to play the game. She has to participate in it. She has to pretend at times that her gender is as they see it in order to get to that next level. And yeah, it's, you know, it's like I talk about it in the later chapters in the chapter about race, but just like code switching, you know, it's whether it's maybe in a gendered way, like there were definitely times where I'd sort of 
bat my eyelids at the male creatives, even though that's just not my MO at all. Like, I'm not a flirty person. Like, even if I genuinely fancy someone at a bar, I'm not flirty. But sometimes I had to do the, like, damsel in distress, could you get me the work that was due to the client yesterday and just sort of play that. You know, like, you just... I'm a pragmatist at the end of the day. And I might know it's wrong. It might piss me off internally. But on that day, my goal was to get this deadline met. And I did what I had to do. And then you can apply that to race as well, which is like, of course, it's wrong that I have to code switch in the office and downplay certain elements of my ethnic identity. And that I can't, you know, I had I'd still with a lot of racism in one job. And I obviously never called it out. I was 24. But also it wouldn't have served me to have called it out. Like, it, no. you know, it's like, I'd love to say on principle, like, I, which is why I think when it comes to kind of activism, that sort of thing, I'm always like, do you know what, guys? Be a pragmatist as well. Like, some people can take the hits and I feel in a position now to take a lot of hits because I work for myself. I'm self-employed. I kind of have this certain sort of career. I can stick my head above the parapet. But I'm like, people who work in nine to fives can't conduct themselves the way I do when it comes to calling stuff out. And I recognise that. And I don't judge them for it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's really interesting. Ortega, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on The Guilty Feminist today and everyone should go out and immediately buy We Need to Talk About Money from Four State Books. Out now. Ortega, a wag, but thank you very much. Woo! Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you for asking me. It's been really, really nice. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Yomi Adagoke, and our very special guest, Ortega Awagba. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Salinsky for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Rachel Clark and Gina DC on everyone who made this happen, as well as to all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. you are here um i have read a big old chunk of your book and i'm so excited to read uh, the rest of it i skipped ahead in some parts because we were talking today so i will just say for the podcast i'll say i've read it but just so that you know oh you no, say no, anything, i mean i only sent it. it to you last night so i'm very impressed that you actually have <laughs> no no i've got this is the number of screenshots i've got oh you can't really see it but um i have to turn my brightness down uh, this is the number of screenshots I've got. Oh, you still can't see it, but all that is white. I can get a sense of it. I can get all a sense screenshots of, it. <laughs> of different pages that lot. I thought, oh, I, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to say for the podcast, I'll just say I've, I've, uh, I've read it. Sure. Cause I've read a lot of it. Um, uh, I read your book. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manis and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. 
I Weigh basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Roland and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile Tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab. Scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now.